afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Well, July 29th, 1805, was the birthday of Alexis de Tocqueville. And you say, well, who's Alexis de Tocqueville? Well, his name shows up uh, in writings in political history and political science. And in fact, it's been claimed that his book, Democracy in America, may be the best book ever written about democracy and the best book ever written about America. With me right now to talk about Alexis de Tocqueville, why he is so important uh, as Americans think of themselves as a nation, what our national purpose may be, is uh, Dr. William Cook. He's Professor Emeritus of History at State University of New York, uh, Geneseo, where he taught on medieval and Renaissance Europe and church history. He's president of the Bill Cook Foundation, which helps poor children in 29 countries uh, go to school. He's... um, author of several books, including The Medieval Worldview, an introduction, and he's, host, he's hosted nine Greek courses lecture series, including uh, those on Dante, the Cathedral, the History of the Catholic Church. And Bill, it's great to have you back here. Thank you. It's good to be back, Al. Well, Alexis de Tocqueville, I can remember, I had not, um, I mean, I saw his name every once in a while when I was in my teens, and into my early 20s. When I got to college, I had an American Studies program, and uh, his name came up quite a bit there. Let's talk. He was a young French nobleman, right, living uh, for a short time in the United States. Why don't you tell us a little bit about him? That's right. His family, in fact, had a couple of members executed during the French Revolution. He was born in 1805, as you said, just after the Revolution. Napoleon's in charge at the time. Well, he became a lawyer. And in 1830, there was a change of governments in France, and A, he was kind of on the outs, but more important, he was a young man, about 25 years old, and he came to the conclusion, from what he'd read, that democracy was inevitably going to come to France in some form. And so he had this kind of preposterous idea, I'd like to go to America, because it's the, this is 1831, it's the oldest democracy in the world (laughs) that's functioning right now, and I'd like to find out what it's like and see whether understanding American democracy would be useful as a model for how the French will evolve toward democracy. So he and a friend cooked up a kind of scheme where they went to the French government and said, we've been reading about new kinds of prisons in the United States, and we need to do prison reform here in France. And how about we go to the United States, we study prisons, we come back, we write a report, so there'll be a new day in, in the development of the way we incarcerate and rehabilitate people in France. And so he and his buddy, Gustave de Beaumont, sailed to the United States. But even on the boat on the way over, Tocqueville wrote back home and said, you know, we're coming to study prisons, and they did, but we're really coming to study democracy. So what this did, of course, it gave them some time off from their jobs. It gave them the opportunity to meet important people. They went to the White House to meet Andrew Jackson. They met former President John Quincy Adams. So they had credentials that sort of got them into high places, And for most of a year, they traveled around the United States, mostly in New England and New York and Pennsylvania. The two prisons were in Pennsylvania and New York that they especially wanted to visit. But they also went to, picture what this would be like in 1831, Green Bay, Wisconsin. (laughs) They they went down the Ohio. They went down the Mississippi all the way to New Orleans. So they really got a good look at democracy. And Tocqueville came back to France after the prison report was written. He wrote a book called Democracy in America in 1835, decided to write a second volume to make the two into one in 1841. So the Democracy in America book that we have was written in two phases, and it's almost 700 pages long. 
wow. which means a lot of people have heard of it. A lot of people have read snippets from it. The most quoted line of Tocqueville is a line that Tocqueville didn't say. <laughs> uh, many people will say the great one-liner from Alexis to Tocqueville is, America is great because America is good, and when America ceases to be good, it will cease to be great. Somebody said that about Tocqueville's writings, and it's probably not a bad way of thinking about what Tocqueville said, but those are not his words. So at any rate, he's sort of the snippet king uh, in a lot of American history courses. He's quoted a lot uh, about various things. A C-SPAN a few years ago did a visit to every place Tocqueville went. And you know how C-SPAN is. They don't make one-hour things. They make, you know, 50-hour series of things. So so there's a really complete uh, description of where Tocqueville went and sort of uh, C-SPAN looking to see what it was like then and what it's like now. Uh, It's really sort of interesting if you you want to become a Tocqueville freak. But at any rate, uh, there are – the book is 668 pages in the edition I use with my students – but there are a lot of maybe one to 200 page abridgments, as well as a lot of places where he's quoted in smaller snippets. Right. Now, he, uh, I mean, he's, he's seeing that democracy is the wave of the future. He identifies America as, uh, you know, the, the, the tip of the spear here. Um, and in that sense, he, he's somewhat prophetic. Yes, I, I think that's right. Uh, he's, he's prophetic in a lot of ways. He also, by the way, predicted that a time would come before too long where the two great dominant powers in the world, would, neither one would be in Western Europe. It'd be the United States and Russia, he predicted. Wow. So uh, he is a forward-looking guy in a lot of ways. And what he wanted to do, again, he did not want to say, I want to get the blueprint for democracy from America, although generally he liked America and what he saw. What he wanted to do is figure out what I think is really a job for all historians. If you're studying something in the past that you respect and admire, or even something in the present, the question is not how do you copy it, it's how do you adapt it right. to your mm-hmm. realities, your tradition, your situation. And he does that by some very subtle comparisons and some very blunt comparisons. But, Let me give you a blunt comparison. But, but he's writing for the he's, French, right? That's right. He's, he's writing, he's writing French, for the and French. He, and he publishes it in French. That's okay. Right. That's right. There was, by the way, a very early edition uh, in English that was supervised by a man from Canandaigua, New York, whom he had stayed with and who was a member of the state legislature at the time, and later on a U.S. cabinet member. So it did get to the United States pretty quickly. Okay. I was at the Seward House in Auburn, New York, recently, and there's Seward's annotated copy of Democracy in America in his library. Wow. Wow. That must have been fascinating to look at. It is, just to see his comments yeah. on, yeah. on Tocqueville's comments, right. Yeah. So he's writing for the French, and he wants to adapt uh, what he sees in America for the French situation. How different uh, was the French ethos compared to the American ethos? Here's his example. He says, let me tell you about the difference between France and the United States. If 100 people in the United States, 100 men in the United States, realize they have a problem with drinking, they will form an organization, work together, and figure out how to stop drinking. If there were 100 men in France who had the same problem, they would petition the government to make the, make the bars close earlier in the evening. Wow. Wow. In other words, what he realizes is that America has a lot of ways in which democratic sensibilities function for the good of society far beyond constitutional arrangements and structures. And one of the things he basically says, I'm paraphrasing him here, is democracy is not just a form of government, it's a way of life. And that's what he discovered when he came to America. It's not that the Constitution of America is different than another country. That he could have studied in France. 
It's that the American people are different and that Democrats, Democratic values infiltrate everything. There's such a thing as Democratic women, Democratic families. Hmm. Everything changes if you live in a Democratic society. And so he talks about the fact that constitutions are important. This is the part I think a lot of modern people miss. But what's even more important is what, what he calls the habits of the heart. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That, that's what makes a democracy. My own view is when we try to, we mean the United States, try to build or create democracies in places around the world, we forget that part. Right, right. We, we think about the Constitution, we think about the economy, we don't think about those habits of the heart that are necessary for a democracy yeah. to function. Well, so, this, is, this was one I of the criticisms. One of the yeah, I mean, this was one of the criticisms of uh, George W. Bush's uh, going into uh, uh, Iraq, uh, that the Iraqi people uh, were human beings made in the image and likeness of God. They were intelligent. They were certainly uh, uh, worthwhile people, but they hadn't yet developed the habits and dispositions that make for a democratic society. That was the complaint. That, that, and, and I think that's exactly right. I yeah. was at a conference yeah. on democracy in Prague a few years ago, and this was the way one person put it. You can have a democratic constitution in six months. You can have a, a market economy in six years. But it might take you 60 years to build those habits of the heart, to build uh, those sort of democratic, that democratic culture. And this guy said, mm-hmm. and we don't have 60 years. We've got to find ways yeah. in yeah. nations where we hope to found democracy to jumpstart building civil society. How was his work received in France? Very well. Uh, both volumes won prizes. He was later on a member of the Assemblée Nationale. Briefly, he was a cabinet minister in France. Mm-hmm. So he was a successful politician uh, as well as writer. He also wrote a very fine book just before he died on the French Revolution. Hmm. So he was, he was a guy who was well-loved and well-respected in his own lifetime. Okay. Uh, the book itself contains, as you point out in your lecture series, it contains very little chronology. Um, and, it's, it's right. not, and it's not full of uh, data. Uh, so it's, what, largely a book of insight. That's right. And luckily, we have some of his letters that he wrote while he was here and also notebooks he kept so that we, we would otherwise not really know many of the places he went. For example, uh, this is near where I live, so I'm sort of proud of this. He came to Canandaigua, New York. It was the first place he stayed in a private home rather than a hotel. And he stayed with a member of the state legislature. And he had conversations on the front porch. And he actually wrote down a couple of those conversations virtually verbatim. Hmm. We wouldn't even know he met this guy. We wouldn't know he'd ever been in Canandaigua, New York, let alone what he'd learned from this particular person if his notebooks and his letters had not survived. Wow. <laughs> That's amazing. Now, what kind of uh, spiritual religious background did he have? He, is, he was and, and remained Catholic. Uh, I'm not sure we would say he's a faithful practicing Catholic, but he was always a believer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he talked a lot about religion in America, because here's one of the issues he has. He says that in a democracy, the tendency is for the majority's views, and after all, democracy, even with its Republican structure, is majoritarian. Majorities change their minds very quickly. Right. And, and therefore, it's hard to keep on a steady path. So his question is, what are some of the antidotes to that? And his answer, more than any other one, was religion. Because religion gets you focused on, if you will, a very long future. Yeah. Re- religion yeah. makes you reflect on your life, not just your tomorrow or what you're going to do tonight. And religious values tend to temper the dangers of having a, a, a kind of unstable uh, 
you know, always changing majoritarian government. Mm-hmm. Very good. Uh, hold it there, Bill. We're going to continue conversation. My guest is uh, Dr. William Cook. He is the host of a series called Tocqueville and the American Experiment, offered by the Great Courses. It's outstanding, and I've been listening to it in preparation for our conversation today. Again, it's called Tocqueville and the American Experiment. It was on July 29th of 1805 that Alexis de Tocqueville was born. Again, one of the great uh, 19th century observers of America, author of the nearly 700-word book, Democracy in America. We'll be right back for more. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me is Dr. William Cook, Professor Emeritus of History at State University of New York, uh, Geneseo, where he taught on medieval and Renaissance Europe and church history. We're looking at uh, one of the lecture series he did for the teaching company, uh, Great Courses. It's called Tocqueville and the American Experiment, and uh, our discussion today occasioned by the birthday of Alexis de Tocqueville, July 29, 1805. So we missed it by a day, but... Uh, this is one of the great 19th century observers of uh, America, uh, one of the great observers of democracy. And it's interesting that uh, Tocqueville gets quoted by both uh, those on the conservative side of the political spectrum and those on the liberal side of the political spectrum. Isn't that right, Bill? That's right. Uh, it, it, during the Clinton years, especially the latter Clinton years, both Bill Clinton and Newt Gingrich, who was, of course, the Speaker of the House after 1998, were great Tocqueville fans. Gingrich used to write to all the freshman congressmen, you should read the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and Tocqueville before you get here. Wow. And Clinton was, was equally uh, happy with uh, Tocqueville and, and knew Tocqueville very well. So that was the heyday when both parties were sort of even consciously and publicly talking about the value of democracy in yeah. America. Again, this was the late 90s. Yeah, yeah. So they both saw that th- this was not a partisan uh, document. This is one that takes a look at, again, the habits and dispositions that make up a strong democracy. He was uh, Catholic, but uh, it sounds as though he had appreciation for the Calvinist uh, beginnings in New England. He did. Uh, he, he, he'd been to New England, he'd been to town meetings and so on, and he liked all that stuff. But one of the conclusions he draws that perhaps for many people is counterintuitive is that he thinks that democracy and Catholicism work better than democracy and Protestantism. Yeah, oh, tell and us that, more. That would, go, yeah. that would go against sort of, you know, the obvious way of thinking, because right. you think of the hierarchical Catholic Church. Sure. Well, he said, of course, the Catholic Church is hierarchical. But once you get beyond that hierarchy, the, 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 the pope, the bishop, and the priest, everybody else is equal. Yeah. That yeah. everybody in the congregation is equal, and they're all mixed. Now, remember, <laughs> the, the, the Catholics in America that he saw, primarily except for Maryland, were recent Irish immigrants, for example, people that helped to dig the Erie Canal and mm-hmm. so on. Mm-hmm. But when he looked at Protestant churches, and we still see this in museums and so on, uh, you know, the, the important people sat in front, they, buy, they bought their own pews, and, right. and they sat there and had their names on it. There are a lot of churches you can go to, whether it's in Boston or other places, where you still see that. 
And so Tocqueville thought that, in fact, the Protestants were more divided up into classes, a kind of undemocratic thing, Hmm. than Catholicism, which people usually think of as kind of a totalitarian monarchy and therefore the opposite of democracy. So he drew some counterintuitive ideas about democracy and religion. There's that that famous phrase, I think it's James Joyce, uh, describing Catholicism as, here comes everybody. (laughs) (laughs) That's right, that's right. Tocqueville would like that. Right, right. Um, so when he, you point out in the lecture series something which I think is very surprising to people. He doesn't put liberty as the primary uh, virtue uh, necessary for democracy. He looks at equality of condition. What, he, what does he mean by equality of condition? You're right, and, that, and that's a really important point. I want to tell you a story about it after I, after sure. I answer your question question um what keep in mind of course he came from french society his family talked about the good old days before the revolution no doubt where for example nobles went to different courts they had different punishments for the same crimes or maybe even certain things wouldn't have been crime for nobles it would have been for non-nobles so that's the world that he at least by by hearing his family stories and so on inherited and so democracy is the opposite of that. It's, it's the equality of conditions. Everybody is equal in the streets. Everybody counts one. It doesn't mean everybody has the same amount of money. It, it's, not, it's not an economic statement. He thought very little in economic terms. But it means that everybody plays by the same rules, and mm-hmm. everybody is treated equally. So, for example, you know, if, if I, I guess this would be a way of thinking about it. If in the old, at least in the ancien regime in France, if you walk down the street and you saw somebody who was noble, you'd probably bow to them, you'd, you'd, you'd refer to them by their whole title, and they would probably sort of hardly walk by and wave or whatever. <laughs> That's not the way it is on the American street. Right, right. Because every, everybody counts one. Everybody is equal. Yeah. And, uh, and, and Tocqueville made that observation and then went on to a, a really interesting conclusion. He said democracy to work needs for people to be active in their democracy, but the very notion of equality of condition tends to drive them away from what he calls the public square, from acting in public. Because in public, you're exactly the same as everybody else, while in your own private world, whether it's being grandpa or professor or whatever it is, you know, you, you're somebody special. Hmm. You're somebody who's not like everybody else. And therefore, this was one of the great ironies of democracy. It needed people out in the streets, but the very principle that was central to democracy drove people back into their homes. So that's one of the things he, he wrestles with and looks at uh, a great deal. But let me tell you a story yeah, about the me. idea of equality. I, I know this will sound bizarre, but I was in a camel market in Morocco. I was not <laughs> buying a camel, I want to point out, but I drove by and it looked interesting. Okay. And I'm talking to a young Muslim lawyer, and he said to me, you know, we don't like democracy here. I said, why not? He said, because in the United States, people watch pornography, and the kids can get a hold of pornography. And he went on and on and on about this sort sure. of stuff. And if that's what democracy is, we don't want it. Well, an interesting observation. So anyway, I said to him, but the essence of democracy from which liberty follows, the essence of democracy is equality. He said, equality? Why didn't somebody say so? I'm for that. Mohammed's for that. <laughs> and I thought that was a really interesting response. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, I kept thinking maybe instead of calling it Iraqi freedom, we should have called it Iraqi equality. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> that's, that's sort of a joke. But, right, but right. you know, it was interesting that I wonder sometimes whether Tocqueville's characterization 
of democracy might be more useful in explaining it to people who have no experience than simply, you know, wanting to pound the drum, however important it is, of the First Amendment. Right, right. No, that's, that's, that's very interesting. When he talks about equality uh, of condition, it's what we would call equality of opportunity? Yes, in, in part, I think. And he did, he did say if, if conditions economically get too, too far apart, that is a problem for democracy. Mm-hmm. Because the, the, he saw pre-industrial America. He saw small-town America. And he would see, of course, there are richer and poorer people. But they, they, their kids play together and go to the same schools. They go to the same churches. And again, if they're Catholic, they sit in the same pews with one another. Right. And, and, and so he, he, didn't, he didn't worry about, right now in America, 1831, he didn't worry about economic inequality being, being a problem. So we didn't talk much about it. But he did at one point say, if it ever gets to be, I think I'm, I'm now obviously modernizing what he says, you know, people living in gated communities, people with so much more money that their children never mix with regular children right, and so on right. and so forth, that would be a problem for democracy. Interesting. There's a, there's a very good book by Robert Putnam, the guy who wrote Bowling Alone. Yeah, sure. He's a sociologist at Harvard. He wrote a book called Our Kids, and he went back to his hometown in eastern Ohio, and examined the structure of the town sociologically now as compared to when he was a kid. I think he's probably about 70 now. And he draws some interesting and in some ways disturbing conclusions about there, there was more, not, not necessarily racial, but in many other ways, there was more integration in the 50s when he was growing up than there is now. And he worried about that as, as, as uh, somebody is interested in democracy yeah. and egalitarian society. So I recommend that book. It's yeah. Our Kids by Robert Putnam. So he, his claim is that now we're more stratified class-wise? Yes, and, and that there really is physical separation. Yeah. So that, uh, you know, a, a lot of... I, I do a lot of work for organizations for very wealthy people, and very few of their children go to public schools. And if they do, they're very good suburban public schools. Mm-hmm, so that, mm-hmm. that, that kids of different social classes are not mixing as thoroughly in schools as they would have, you know, in a small sure. town in America where there was only one school, right? Right, right, uh, right. And, and, and I think he would worry about that and other kinds of stratification that, that, that simply keep the daily intercourse of, of different groups uh, separate, uh, or, or rather prohibit that intercourse, or yeah. at least discourage it. I think, I think he recognizes that if you have a quality of conditions and everybody counts one, it's important those ones sort of mix with each other right. and know each other and talk to each other. And his great image for American small town is the town square. Mm-hmm. People were mm-hmm. in the town square. They'd be arguing. There'd be somebody in a soapbox. There would be newspaper offices around. There was more than one newspaper. There would have been a town hall on the square, and that's a place where people could assemble, usually free to talk and not just for government meetings. There were churches where people mingled. Right. Uh, restaurants had, had big tables where people sat in tables that didn't, didn't know each other, and homes had parlors, yeah. which were after yeah. all talking rooms. Yeah, and people there were all read these places where different people get, and people read. Yeah, and, you, and there was more than one, more than one newspaper, even in small towns. Interesting. Uh, you point out in the lecture series that um, it, it, during that era, Americans never u- did not use the word peasant to describe anybody. Yeah, is that, did, that's right. That's it, right. Is, this was a, because peasant was you know a derogatory term, and yeah. ultimately the peasants are the derivatives of feudal serfs. Right. Right. In a lot of ways, and and, and therefore, it's a, it, it it is not a term. I mean, even even dirt poor people 
and there certainly were some, were not called peasants. Right. And, and so that, that sort of falls out of the vocabulary, or at least except as an insult. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so he saw that, did he fear, what did he think was most, in, from what he observed, what did he think was most threatening to America's democratic future? One thing he feared a great deal was that ultimately what he called administration of government would be centralized. In other words, and this is, this is why so many conservatives right. like him today, because what he believed is that there needed to be what he called a centralization of authority. You can't have every county can't have his own army or you know, right. other, other kinds <laughs> right. of things. Sure. But government should be administered at as local a level as is possible. So it may be his example. He gives it from New York. The state may supply a lot of the money for the public schools, but the public schools ought to be controlled by local school boards. Right, right, right. And, and he, he recognized because, again, one of the things that brings people out of their desire to go off by themselves where they're someplace special is vibrant local government. Because people all, people all know, when we talk about this all the time in politics, people want their potholes fixed. Right, right. And local governments fix potholes. Yeah. And local governments change speed limits on streets with kids playing and that sort of thing. And if local governments actually had authority, first of all, the best people would want to be in those offices. And secondly, these would be well-run places. If ultimately all a local government does is take orders and get checks from a higher level of government, who wants to hold those offices? Where there's really no discretion to be exercised. So Tocqueville really believed in the vibrancy of local government. He didn't even talk much about state government. He was really meaning, you know, village and town right. and county government. Right. Uh, and he thought if, if, that, if that ceased to be vibrant and simply was something that was a kind of shell government, that would be bad not for the county only, but for democracy itself. My guest, Dr. William Cook, Tocqueville and the American Experiment. I'm Al Cresta. We'll be right back. And a good afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta. With me is Dr. William Cook. He is he hosts the Great Courses series, Tocqueville and the American Experiment. It's an outstanding set of lectures. And we're talking about Alexis de Tocqueville, one of the most influential uh, observers of uh, the American experiment in democracy, going back uh, to the uh, middle third of the 19th century. And uh, I'm curious, he, he did not, he, one of the benefits, or one of the... Um, blessings uh, America had in his mind was that we didn't have any enemies. What did he mean by that? Well, that is to say the United States, after all, is ultimately Canada. Canada was not a problem. And Mexico was not a problem at this time in the United States. I mean, in any way. I don't, I don't mean to make it sound in, 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 in turn, but Canada's not going to invade the United States. Mexico's not going to invade the United States. Uh, let's, let's leave alone that Texas thing a little bit later. Okay. But at any rate, <laughs> um, at any rate, we've got natural boundaries. We've got the Atlantic and the Pacific. Yeah. And, you know, he looks at France, and who does France fight all the time? (laughs) Well, there's Germany, where they have a long border. Uh, They fight Spain uh, from time to time. There's a border there. There's some mountains, but there's there's a land border. And, and, And Europe is bound up in all these wars. Well, the United States can develop relatively free of that. He, he looked at a day when America didn't need what we would call a big defense budget. You know, we know there was a secretary of war in, in the early cabinets and so on. There was no secretary of defense until after World War II hmm. that, um, that the United States had a chance 
to sort of run this experiment of democracy, if you will, in as kind of safe a place as possible. France is not going to have that freedom, by the way. He knows yeah, that. Yeah. But you can that in, in a sense, America is for him a kind of laboratory experiment. It's hard to have set it up better than it turns out history set it up. Does uh, does he think America would ever be uh, vulnerable to kind of a strong man like a Napoleon? Not like a Napoleon, but what he said was, if there gets to be too big a gap in in and income between the very rich and the very poor, and so on. And if there continues to be a centralization of administration of government, he imagined what he saw as kind of a soft dictatorship that could develop. Mm-hmm. It would never be a brutal dictatorship. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. He, could, he could imagine a sort of soft one that, that basically took care of people okay, but no longer provided the stimulus and the challenge and the intellectual opportunities of, of America as, as he saw it. So... Those were some fears. I think those were distant fears. I don't think he was saying that was around the corner. However, one thing people forget, because in the and in the uh, bridged editions, this is almost never included, the longest chapter is about slavery. Interesting. And it's, it's about the three races, meaning Native Americans and blacks and whites. And he is, he is just so appalled by slavery. And he can't fathom how any Americans think that the way they talk about democracy is compatible with owning other human beings. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's really morally offended by it. And his friend, uh, uh, Gustave de Beaumont, who went with him, actually wrote a novel based on uh, black experience in Maryland uh, when he got back to France. Uh, so this was something that, that really upset him. And he kept saying, how could you think that you can actually live the values you claim to espouse with slavery? Yeah. And, and But he says, when slavery will end, and it will end, he said, the problems are not going to cease. And in fact, they might even get worse. So, so he doesn't imagine once the slaves are free and everybody gets, you know, 40 acres and a mule, everything's going right. to be him dandy. He, uh, he, he never fantasized about that. He knew, and he, and he said, if there's going to be an, a, rev, a revolution in America, it will come from the problem of the racial divides of the three races. Wow. Um, he... He was um, uh, recognized that the South was a more aristocratic arrangement than the North. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And he traveled there. Uh, one of his great stories, one of his great images of the book, is he's going down the Ohio River, and Kentucky's on one side and Ohio's on the other side. And he gets out on occasion on both sides. And he says, you know, exactly the same soil, the same crops, very, very different places. Because the, in the, in the, on the Kentucky side, where they're slaves, the white guys sit and the black guys work. Hmm. Ohio is industrious, and there are people starting businesses and so on. And so this sort of adds to his, not only is slavery bad for the slaves, slavery is bad for white people. Yeah, yeah. That is bad for the slave owners. And, but that, that's his, he has this wonderful passage that describes the two sides of the Ohio River. There's really sort of a classic in looking at everything's the same except one thing, and look what's happened. Yeah, yeah, no, that's fascinating. Um, what did he think about uh, U.S. treatment of uh, Native Americans? You know, it's interesting. He spoke very little about them, and perhaps one reason is he, he started out in the East. He started out in New York and headed up to Albany and then across paralleling the Erie Canal to Buffalo. Mm-hmm. That, that was the first part of his journey, because one of the prisons he wanted to visit, one of the two most important prisons in this reform he was studying, was Auburn, New York, which is right in the center of New York. So he doesn't see very many, he doesn't see really any Indians for a while. 
And when he gets to Buffalo, his first experience is seeing a bunch of drunken Indians in mm. the streets. And that really affects him. And although he has other images of Indians as well from later on, I mean, again, he's in Green Bay, Wisconsin, for God's sake. Uh, I think he never quite got over that. I, I don't think he ever fully came to grips or thought about, you know, what does this say about Indians or what does this say about White Bill's treatment of Indians? He talks some about that, but he really doesn't, he, he doesn't feel quite perhaps as simpatico with the Indians as he does with African Americans. Yeah. And it's interesting yeah. because just as he's here is when Andrew Jackson's ordering, you know, the expulsion of Indians from Georgia yeah. off to Oklahoma. And he, he seems to be either unaware of it or at least it doesn't enter in either the book or his own notes, although he didn't like Andrew Jackson very much for other reasons. Uh, he, you mentioned that he had uh, a, a belief that there was a, uh, that the Indians of his day were actually descendants of a more advanced group of Indians. He, he had the, there was a, a more glorious past for Indians. What was that about? Well, I don't, you know, it's sort of a hazy idea. I think that, well, for one thing, he was impressed that, gosh, now you're going to catch me off guard here. One of the <laughs> Indian groups he learned about had a written language. In fact, he mentioned that they had written language before they had clothes. Huh. Uh, I don't know whether he saw that or he heard that or read that. Yeah. But, you yeah. know, it's sort of an interesting image, these, these, these naked people standing around reading, you know. Um, and um, so I think he probably had less direct exposure to Native Americans. And, he, and again, he just doesn't talk about it much. On the other hand, he really does see the effects of slavery. So, but, but That's the he, pressing he issue know, for him. He, yeah, and he doesn't know very much about. I mean, I guess the way I would say he he never he doesn't know very much about Native right, Americans, right. even compared to what he's known about African Americans. Yeah, um, what does he think of the what we cherish as the First Amendment issues: uh, freedom of the press, uh, freedom of uh, religion? Uh, it, yeah, that's a very interesting question because, of course, he studied the Constitution. He'd read that before he came, and. When he came, he was not particularly a big believer in the freedom of the press in particular. Hmm. He thought that was probably an exaggerated right in the Constitution. He changed his mind completely on that. Really? And said democracy demands a, a free press. Hmm. Uh, and, and so that was something where visiting America convinced him of something that, that reading the documents didn't convince him of. With regard to freedom of speech and assembly and so on, what he believed was this. If you believe in equality of conditions then you have to believe in freedom of speech and so on, because, you know, the old principle, equals can't bind equals. Yeah, yeah. And so, if, so what will happen is personal freedoms of various kinds will follow from equality. They aren't the basis. Tocqueville says there can only be one fundamental principle behind a society, and in a democracy it's equality from which follows, inevitably certain freedoms, like freedom of speech and so on. But he was particularly vehement by the time he left America about the importance of freedom of the press. Yeah. Now, in, in France, we had this altered throne arrangement that the, the uh, revolution took aim at. What did he think about church-state arrangements in the United States? He talked to a, a minister in Auburn, New York. He stayed there for a while because there was a prison there. And he talked to this minister, Protestant minister of some sort, and the minister said, you know, I don't talk about politics from the pulpit. I don't even vote. Really? Because once, polit once churches get involved in politics, they'll be treated like every other political organization, and it will, it will doom their power. Just another interest Only group. Political, yeah. 
Right, right, exactly. And and someone who's open to all the criticisms that, you know, the ACLU or the National Rifle Association are open to sure. will just become another organization. So he he believed very much that the power of religion was also rooted in the way it keeps separate from from in church speaking out about politics and ministers getting involved in partisan causes. Now, you know, that that doesn't mean if he came back in 1964, he would have condemned Martin Luther King. I and mean, we have to realize sure. he's in a very different world than that. Right, but right. nevertheless, he thought that the churches were most powerful, and they needed to be powerful because they persuaded people not to give in to an easy majority, not to change their minds all the time, not to, not to save their money for tomorrow, but to save it for the long term. All these virtues that are necessary for democracy that are being taught in church will then all become subjects of debate like everything else is in political associations. Hmm. So he really thought churches needed to stay out of politics, and clergy ought to stay out of politics. Interesting. What about political parties? What did he, how did he see uh, the United States? Uh, I know many of the founding fathers didn't like the idea of political parties. Uh, right. What did he think of them? He said... He observed that there, there are two kinds of political parties in a democracy, what he calls great parties and small parties. He says America has no great parties. That is to say, great parties are based on, on bedrock principles and values and so on, while, while small parties are based on electoral strategy and advantage. And he thought that, that even at this stage of the game, this is 1831, American parties, whether that's you know the, the, the new Democrats looking back at the Federalists and so on, uh, whatever the parties were the, in, at the time of America starting, they now all devolved into what he calls small parties. So he was not a fan of political parties, and I think he was probably sympathetic to some of the writers of the of the Federalist Papers and so on who feared parties as, and, and, and identified them as factions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, of uh, all the uh, translations of uh, mm-hmm. democracy in America, which do you would yeah. you recommend to us? I use one, uh, and I taught this book for years, I use one by Harvey Mansfield, uh, M-A-N-S-F-I-E-L-D. Mm-hmm. He's, a, he's, a, he's a professor at Harvard. Yep. Uh, he's probably 20 years old now. I think it's the best translation. Okay, good. And is, there, is it annotated at all, or does it have a lengthy introduction? It has a good introduction, yeah. yeah. And, and there are notes and stuff. It's, it's, a, big, it's a big, big thing. It's, you know, again, it's, I believe in this particular translation, I think that's where I got the number 668 pages. So it's a, it's a long thing. And what I would say to people is, you know, maybe you want to look online or maybe you want to find uh, a, a, a somewhat condensed version in bookstores. Whenever you see a thin book called Democracy in America, you look and see it, it, that it's, in fact, a bridge. Yeah. And that may be a good place to start. Yeah. But i got to tell you, there, there are... There are really insights and gems throughout the book. Bill, thanks so much. Great talking with you. That was very helpful. A pleasure, Al. Okay. Hope we'll talk to you again sometime soon. Yep. Sure. Bye-bye. Professor William Cook is an outstanding presenter. I have to say he has uh, courses with the teaching company, Dante, outstanding one on the cathedral, and he'll be joining us again in the future. I'm Al Cresta.